Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted today to welcome my guest, Tom Slater, who is the editor of Spiked. Tom, welcome. Thanks for having me. So before we get into Spiked and what Spiked is all about, um, I want to talk to you a bit about yourself and about where you came from and how you got into this game. My because story. Your story, exactly. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I want you to open up to me like I'm yeah. Oprah Winfrey or something like that. I've got a lot but, to get off my chest. Uh, I'm sure you do. Uh, well, I mean, you are now the editor of Spikes mm-hmm. as of how long ago? A month ago? It must have been a month or so, something yeah. like that. It's flown by. So You're very young for a, an editor of a publication, aren't you? That's not I, I'm probably not as young as people think I am, but I've been, you know, I've been there for eight years, um, right. and it's I started as a cultural editor, funnily enough, writing about arts and culture, and then slowly got more and more interested in the politics. But yes, maybe um, a bit young looking for my age, but I've um, put in the... Putting the time. Yeah, <laughs> the moisturiser, that kind of thing. So, how did you start that? Did you always know that you wanted to go into journalism? What, 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 what happened there? Well, I think actually my way into it um, was when I was a teenager, I was 17 years old, and I got on something which um, Spike organised, which is called the Young Journalists Academy, which was for state school students in London to go on this um, week long course where you'd um, go into workshops with journalists, learn the various bits of the trade, um, and through that, that kind of more and more sparked my interest, um, would do bits of writing here and there and interning over the years. Was originally getting into sort of arts and culture journalism. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of university, I did bits and pieces for Time Out about music. Used to write for Spikes about film, funnily enough, way back when. Yeah. But then just got more and more interested in the politics of Spiked. Um, became increasingly convinced that they had something very important to say. And as I moved into the organisation, as I say, just got more of the kind of bit between my teeth on the political issues, freedom of speech being the first one, but also, you know, the past eight years have been such a fascinating time to be yeah, writing absolutely. about politics, given it feels like a world ago when I actually first started getting into this. So a fascinating time to do it, definitely. Yeah, I mean, when I was writing for Spiked, and when I started, when, you know, which was largely down to you, of course, one of the things that really appealed to me about the publication is it seemed to be the only publication that was really consistently standing up for free speech mm. and liberal values and liberty. And, uh, you know, and that's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Because those should be sort of the default expectations of everyone. And this is, I suppose, why spiked is necessary. Is that right? I think so. I, I do see us as sort of being the people who really hold the line on freedom of speech, even in those really difficult cases. I mean, yeah. I think we saw the threats to free speech that we're all grappling with now that have really launched into the mainstream quite early on. Yeah. And I, I it's just one of the things that I think is one of the things that people really appreciate about us is that we do support freedom of speech with no ifs, no buts. There's no um, caveats here. We're not just doing it to support people who we agree with. The test of freedom of speech is to defend people you find utterly yeah. odious. Um, and I think that's something which has, has really marked us out. And I think our big contribution actually in recent years has been to try and give that argument for freedom of speech, which is ancient really, just a bit more new life and apply it to the current period and try and push back against all these liberal new trends that we're dealing with at the moment. Are these the kinds of issues that uh, made you more interested in politics then, rather than the idea of the left or right-wing debate or conservatives or Labour? Because mm. you talk about how you've gone from arts and culture into politics. Is it really these issues more than anything that attracted you? I think so, in large part, because you've got to think when I first you know, started at Spikes, you know, this was the coalition years. You know, Politics felt like it was so dead. I mean, there were things going on. You know, There was obviously... Um, the economic crisis, there was austerity, there were important issues, but again, that kind of sense in which the two parties were dancing on ahead of a pin. Um, and also the growing sense that these kind of bigger kind of prince issues of moral principle were becoming mm. more and more important. One of the first things I did at Spiked on the more kind of political side was running campaigns in universities for freedom of speech. 
this was like 2013 around then when you start to see the safe space culture start to creep in no yeah. platforming getting more and more bananas um, and through that I just started to realize how important those issues were not just on the campus but in life in general and in yeah. society because it was it was starting to crest even then definitely was any of this going on when you were at university yourself it was a bit more in the background, I think. So I was at the okay. University of Sussex, um, which has a strong no-platforming tradition, if you like, which is quite funny, because if, yes. you know, if there's a sort of fascist uprising bedded in any way, it's probably not on the campus of Sussex University. I'm going to go out there. But, but recently, we've, we've had all these problems on Sussex with Kathleen Stock mm -hmm. and you know, a student activists becoming ever more militant yeah. and extreme about, about what is acceptable. And did you see anything like that when you were at this institution, any kind of the seeds of this kind of thing? Maybe, but I think it was also a slightly different time as far as politics didn't permeate everything in student mm -hmm. life in the way that it does now. I mean, there was, as I say, there was this history of kind of anti-fascist, no platforming, and yeah. all the rest of it. And sometimes that would spill over, not just from the far right, but to conservatives and right-wingers. You started to see um, the unfurling of that of that logic that we've always pointed out, which is that if you justify censorship, even for the extremes, then yeah. it naturally grows and festers. And I think what Sussex University actually is quite a nice, neat example of, if you go back from the kind of old no platforming to the new no platforming, is that if you concede the principle of freedom of speech, free speech for fascists can very quickly become free speech for feminists, as it does in the case of Kathleen Stock or other gender critical people. So yes, maybe spotted some of the seeds then, but I think it just wasn't, even at a very political university as, as Sussex was and is, um, it just hadn't quite you know, washed through everything in a way that feels like it has done now. Does that mean that you would suggest that free speech should even be granted to fascist speakers on campus? 100%. I, mean, I think that's the test. Um, mm. If you have a no... There's this kind of idea that no platform was fine when it was just for the far right. Yes. Um, and I think that's always been a complete error. Not but because fascists have anything wonderful to tell us, of course not, but it's only really through allowing those ideas to be aired, that you can challenge them, that you can understand them, and that you can discredit them in front of an audience, which is a really important thing to be able to do. And even on the point of, look, no one wants fascism to have an upsurge, no one wants it to make some sort of a comeback. Mm. If you're genuinely interested in challenging bigoted ideas, censoring bigots is just about the worst thing you can possibly do, yeah. in my opinion. It, it lends them a glamour they really don't deserve. I think it would escape no one's attention that a lot of people on the extreme right have tried to take up the mantle of the freedom of speech yes. in recent years because precisely of them being targeted by censorship. But also you can't really defeat ideas that you pretend don't exist. Mm. And that is why I think even if we're talking about the people that we can all agree are nut jobs and utterly odious, free speech has to go for them because it is for all or it's for none at all, basically. But the origins of the no platforming mm -hmm. uh, rule, that, that's in the 70s, isn't yeah. it? The NUS is saying... This is specifically for fascists, specifically mm -hmm. for the far right. And in a sense, what you're suggesting is they created the kernel of the problem we face today mm -hmm. by doing so. But would you concede that some people, you know, if, if, if I had a university um, organisation, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't want to invite some odious fascists to mm -hmm. speak just because I wouldn't particularly, I wouldn't find, I don't find those people interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, isn't there a, a, um, a value to that idea of not everyone deserves a platform? Well, I think it comes down to the fact that people should be free to invite whoever they please. Right. I mean, there's a tendency in this discussion to caricature 
what we might call our position in, by saying, oh, you're suggesting that you should just force these speakers on people. Of course yeah. not. If a society doesn't want to invite someone, if someone doesn't want to go to an event, that's absolutely fine. If they want to protest that event, that's also absolutely fine. The difference is, is I think, if students want to invite those people, if you think, you know, uh, debating societies or the Oxford and Cambridge Union have a long and storied history of inviting even quite extreme or radical people in yes. order to, in the spirit of freedom of speech, in order to allow people to challenge them. They should be allowed to do that. It's not about in, in, inflicting these people yeah, <laughs> on yeah, the yeah. individuals. It's about allowing the freedom to do that. And as you say, it's not as if these people have a hell of a lot to say, but you can understand the utility of actually interrogating those ideas if people felt yeah. it was necessary. You know? So what, is the, what has happened with the mindset change? I mean, you know recently the president of the Cambridge Union mm -hmm. drew up a blacklist of speakers who were considered too offensive, but he said he wasn't going to say who was on the blacklist, but he would <laughs> circulate it to other unions. Mm -hmm which is quite sinister, I, I, I would put it, put it to him. Although he then retracted when he realised that this all sounds a bit Stalinist. He mm. said, OK, we won't do that then. Um, but the fact that he would even reach that point where that was considered a reasonable thing to do. So is there just a general attitudinal shift or mind, mindset shift within student politics generally? Mm. I think so. I think it's just that authoritarianism reigns at the moment. I mean, it's almost unthinking. I mean, I thought it was so interesting in the Cambridge Union case that he even used the phrase blacklist. Did, without yeah. realising what that means, yeah. what the historical associations of that are. I mean, it's, it's actually quite useful because for a long time, student censors have couched their policies in incredibly caring language. Who's against a safe space? You know, yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah. like the most lovely thing in the world, whereas we know it has a very authoritarian and quite yeah. ugly uh, flip side to it. But again, I think, it's a, I think it's a combination of things. Freedom of speech is just fundamentally out of fashion amongst, stu amongst student radicals and the left in particular. I think yeah. there's large sections, particularly the cultural left, which effectively define themselves against freedom of speech in a sense. They see it as the source of all that is wrong in yeah, society. Yeah, yeah. And it's just quite hard to dislodge that sense, but they've got it 180 degrees the wrong way around, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of pushing for progressive politics and challenging the things that they so dislike in society. But if they don't want to have the conversation, if they're saying that the conversation is in and of itself a problem, you'll never be able to persuade them, will you? Well, this is the thing, because I think... The important thing to bear in mind, and universities are difficult because you do some, at certain points just think, especially with, and we're not just talking about students here, academics as well, something like the Kathleen Stock situation. Mm. The fact that none of her colleagues, even in a philosophy department, could really summon up the courage to publicly defend her. You do yeah. start to wonder if certain institutions like universities are just lost to this stuff okay. for a while. Um, but at the same time, I think whether we're talking about free speech or any other issue, just always got to remember that it's not necessarily always your opponent that you're trying to kind of win over. It's about the audience. It's about yes. society in general. Having out that argument is so important because it allows everyone else to work out what they believe to be true. So I think that's why having the argument is always so important, even if you're not necessarily going to convince the other side in that debate. is because of the fact that it's not about them, it's about everyone else and their right to listen and their right to decide. So. Because you, when you edited your book, Unsafe Space, mm. which is a collection of essays about this issue, but specifically academic freedom, freedom of speech mm. on campus, and your introduction to that volume is very interesting because you focus on the Berkeley movement, mm -hmm. the free speech movement there. I mean, was that a deliberate um, rhetorical uh, approach? In other words, if we can show uh, that the, 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 the seedbed of all of this came from this, this monumental mm. moment on Berkeley, which, by the way, obviously, as you know, is now a place where free speech is not particularly... Mm -hmm. Thriving. Is that, is that a, a, an attempt to persuade those undecideds by invoking the spirit of, of the past? I think it's important just to remind people that uh, freedom of speech used to be a left-wing value. It right. used to be a radical value. 
you say this and people look at you as if you're speaking French. I mean, it's genuinely true. And the Berkeley free speech movement in the 1960s in America is a perfect example of that. So this is a radical student movement which was pushing against the university establishment which wanted to refuse their right to be able to organise on campus. So a lot of these students would have been involved in a lot of civil rights agitation, mm -hmm. um, getting the vote out, as well as radical student politics. And what was so brilliant about that movement and why I think that the history of that is worth remembering is because it shows that freedom of speech is a left-wing value. And also there's this tendency to um, misremember those kind of form those kind of student movements and suggest well they were only really interested in their own freedom of speech yeah. it's complete nonsense if you read into the free speech movement they were fighting for the right of all people to be heard it was completely categorical and i interviewed a few of the vet veterans for it a few years ago and they made this point themselves uh, that this is fundamentally about freedom of speech for absolutely everyone so i think it's just important whether it's the free speech movement or even further back in history just to remind people of this left-wing tradition. Now, will that win over people in and of itself? Not necessarily, but it's an important part of the picture that is definitely missing at the it, moment. It probably you know. won't even win over people on the right, because mm. a lot of people I speak to who identify as being right-wing would say that to them it's a no-brainer that left-wing movements have always been censorial, that mm -hmm. have always clamped down on free speech, mm -hmm. and they can cite, obviously, the Soviet Union and places. Mm -hmm. you know, they have a point, don't they, that there's, there's something to that? Well, of course, there's been authoritarian left-wing movements, governments, figures, dictators, all the rest of it. But at the same time, there was always this incredibly important, progressive, radical, pro-freedom strain. The difficulty today is that that's com been completely obliterated. I mean, it almost doesn't exist. And because of that, it's very difficult to make the argument. But if you think about some of the people who made some of the most powerful arguments for freedom of democracy, people like Rosa Luxemburg, um, making the point that freedom is always and exclusively for the one who thinks differently, probably butchering it, but really powerful defences from the radical left yeah, yeah. of freedom of speech and of democracy. These people definitely existed. And also, if you look back into, because so much of the censorship today is around questions of racism or feminism or gender or LGBT or all the rest of it, is that if you look at the struggles for civil rights, um, again, you see them reaching for freedom of speech as their greatest ally, you know, yeah. from Frederick Douglass through the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement. There's a reason that they did that, because it's the greatest weapon you have in order to, particularly as a minority group who don't have a lot of resources, don't have a lot of clout, in order to make your presence felt, make your arguments and win people over. And so, yes, of course, there has been authoritarian left-wing politics. I think the problem today is that the um, more genuinely sort of progressive pro-freedom wing of that has both been obliterated and kind of forgotten, but it's worth drawing on that history and that intellectual tradition, I think, definitely. So do you consider yourself from the radical left tradition? Well, I think that's certainly where myself and Spike draw a lot of our inspiration. The difficulty is, is I don't really see the point nowadays in arguing the toss over whether or not we're left-wing or not, right. just because of the fact that the terms have been completely inverted yes. um, across all sorts of different left-wing political lines. You know, to be an anti-racist today is to fight for race consciousness, is yeah. to think that societies should be entirely reorganised along racial lines, but just in they see it in a kind of positive fashion, which puts the historically oppressed sort of further up the pecking order. Mm. Um, you know, to be a radical left-winger today in recent years was to campaign to crush the votes of millions of working-class people who voted for Brexit. Right. These are all examples of how things have gotten so upside down. I, to the extent that you even feel moved to try and kind of argue the toss over these old labels, it's quite clear that they've 
become increasingly spent and the new dividing lines around freedom, around democracy, around identity even, seem to me to be the more meaningful ones. So moment. that's important though, isn't it? Because people do still see these debates in terms of left and right mm -hmm. and they are always framed in those terms. And the fact that if you support free speech and you are now associated with the right mm -hmm. and then you've got uh, groups who perceive themselves to be left-wing like Navarra Media who, who aren't really that pro-free speech, who seem to be quite captured by identity politics mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, um, so is the argument lost? In other words, may we just, or should we just say, okay, forget it. If you if you want to say we're right wing, we're right wing. Okay. Yeah, I just don't think we should care too much. And also, okay. I feel like you know you're arguing with with um, often with in, uh, with a group of people who will ne who will never really necessarily understand the points that we're making here. Right. Um, and at the same time, do do we really think that? Um, uh, politics in public life in general is really thinking in these terms necessarily all the time either. I think a lot of the time it's all about the issue at hand and if you think about um, freedom of speech at the moment it's a good example. This is something which is drawing together a lot of people from very different political backgrounds. You yeah. know, it's everything from conservatives to radical feminists to more kind of classically liberal people. This is These are where these dividing lines are. These are where these new, quite interesting coalitions and bedfellows are forming. So whilst um, on certain issues, obviously, those people are going to part ways, it's still, I think, we could spend a lot, of the a lot of the time just kind of pushing back against caricatures of us, or we could get down to brass tacks and actually argue over the issues, I guess. So, so maybe there's something positive within all of that. I mean, I've spoken to a number of gender-critical feminists, people like Judy Bindle mm -hmm. as well, who, was, who wrote an, uh, a piece talking about how or she certainly mentioned this online about how she's now writing for traditionally right-wing publications <laughs> because and yet the gender critical feminist movement is so die-hard socialist left um, and yet th this alliance has had to be formed mm -hmm. on the basis of the free speech argument it's, yeah. so it's quite powerful though it can in a sense it could break through these tribal divisions mm -hmm. i think so and also it's just it's so important because it, you know, having freedom of speech is the prerequisite for having politics, really, in so many respects. Yeah. You know, if you're actually going to be able to agitate in society to have out the issues that matter. And so I think it's quite natural that you see these new things forming because we've almost got to fight for that kind of, that original principle first, you know, yes. almost before we can get down to the to the other things that people may be concerned about and may violently disagree about, if you see what I mean. So if you were to encapsulate what spiked is mm. about, what are the core values, what do they, you know, so let's assume that some of the people watching this or listening to this don't know mm -hmm. about Spiked. How, how could you pitch it? <laughs> yeah. So we think of ourselves as a magazine that wants to make history as well as just report on it. So we publish every day, we're an online magazine, polemics, essays, podcasts, but we do all of that because we believe in something, as, yes. you, as you were suggesting. So freedom, particularly freedom of speech, um, democracy, the right of ordinary people to govern society and their nation. Uh, universalism and the idea that humanity is the most important category and that we shouldn't be just hived off into these individual identity yeah. boxes. The idea of um, uh, fl human flourishing and economic plenty in a time where that's often kind of cast as something which is just kind of pollutant and unpleasant and soulless. So it's a collection of all these different things which I think one of the things they often have in common is that people pay lip service to these ideas yeah. across the left and the right to a certain extent but in practice they work constantly to undermine them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in a, in a sense, probably that's the slightly more grander, that's probably the slightly grander take. I think a lot of our role these days is just kind of making sense of a world that seems to have gone increasingly mad, yeah. in which a lot of these old certainties have been turned on their head, in which two plus two equals five. And that, I feel like, is increasingly our role is to kind of articulate the case against a lot of these increasingly bizarre and very regressive trends that seem for a lot of people to come out of nowhere. I think that's really important because one of the uh, recurring things I keep hitting up 
against is the fact that people just don't understand what's going on. Mm. You know, we understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we report on this kind of stuff. You know, today I was um, uh, I, I got sent a, a tweet from someone who claims that they've been suspended by the Labour Party for saying that only women experience the menopause. Mm -hmm. Now, with that kind of thing, it, it, it's, it's easy just to say, you know, why is why are there interviews on television with Keir Starmer, major political figures, mm -hmm. talking about cervixes? Why why the hell is this happening? But is that it, are things actually changing, or are people just continually walking through this sort of smog of bewilderment because it doesn't feel like anyone's really grappling with it, with it or dealing with it? It's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it feels like even though a lot of these issues are much more in the mainstream than they have been in a very long time, you yeah. know, a lot of the issues around freedom of speech. This was quite a niche issue that you know someone at Liberty would get upset about a particular provision yeah. in the law a while ago. Now it's become a really live political issue, not just in the legal sphere, but in cultural life, university life, all these different things, in a way that it wasn't previously. Um, a lot of the issues around identity politics, which we've been writing about for a long time, you've been writing and talking about for a long time, but at the same time now you're having party leaders having to basically hold forth on gender ideology on national television. Yeah, it's yeah. all kind of front and centre, and that feels very useful, very clarifying, because you see what you're pushing against. But at the same time, it's getting worse. Yeah, <laughs> it seems it. to be bedding itself more and more into our institutions. Uh, identitarians, for instance, seem to be getting increasingly intolerant. The power of something like cancel culture seems to be increasing. Um, but maybe it's got to get worse before it gets better. And what feels different now is that um, a lot of people are starting to be braver, which is not the easiest thing to do. Yeah. But to stand up to these things not just in political life, but in their personal lives as well. I mean, that's um, so it, isn't it? Like, things will change, I'm sure, but it's just probably going to get a lot worse before yeah, that. Yeah, probably. But, I mean, it, on the one hand, it's gratifying because, you know, when you and I have been writing about this stuff mm. in the past, we've been accused of, uh, you know, fomenting something that doesn't exist or you're focusing on the, a few nutjob students that are just going a bit far. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, evidence for what we've been writing about is everywhere. Yeah. And and those accusations don't come anymore because, and it's, it sounds a bit like I told you so, mm -hmm. but, yeah, we did. And, and, and now it's quite clear. Um, but on the other hand, as you say, it's more deeply ingrained, mm. and it and it feels like the momentum is such that however much we write or talk about it, and I, and I wonder, I, let's be clear about this because I think like some of the institutions that you would have said were typically on the side mm -hmm. of freedom traditionally, like the ACLU, mm -hmm. for instance, which you know as you know supported the right of neo Nazis to march in Skokie back in the seventies, now is putting out tweets saying they want books to be banned and, and it now is a completely anti-free speech organisation mm -hmm. as far as I can see. So when those sorts of institutions are so captured, is there really any hope of this, of, of, of freedom winning out anymore? Well I think it's all about in a sense creating new institutions and trying to okay. challenge them really because as you say so many of them have been captured. I'm always staggered by even the way in which woke politics, if we're going to call it that, has managed to kind of um, worm its way into quite traditional conservative yeah, yeah, oh yeah. positions. We, you know, the conservatives talking about the left having a chequered history where freedom's concerned. The same could be said at the right, oh, sure, most definitely. Sure. Um, but still, just kind of, you would think would be slightly averse to some of the, some of the more kooky ideas coming out of the identitarian left. And yet you see them creeping in in one way, shape or form, even in like the National Trust at yeah, this point. Yeah. Um, sometimes a bit too much is made of that, but nevertheless, I think it's an interesting example. The Conservative Party, which is a good example, Obviously, you see constant kind of pearl clutching from the left that Boris Johnson is waging a war on woke um, in order to fire up his base and use the alleged bigotry of the people to shore up his position in, in power. But at the same time, it was Theresa May's government that introduced the Gender Recognition Act, which is what the radical feminists have spent recent years raging against and yeah. getting no platform for their, um, for their efforts. 
Um, and as well as we're learning recently the role that Stonewall continues to play even within these conservative institutions. So it is absolutely everywhere. But at the same time, I think the answer is still, you know, not to, you know, just kind of despair at that, but is to, is to push back. Because one of the things that I think is quite positive is that this ideology has assumed such a kind of uh, purchase in all of these institutions. But at the same time, it's quite feeble in yeah, a lot of ways. Yeah. It's regressive. It's ugly. When you expose it for what it is, it's quite clear that this is the exact opposite of what it claims to be. As yeah. far as it's very racialist, it's obsessed with, you know, even the gender politics stuff seems to me to be rehabilitating a lot of misogynistic ideas. And it's also just unpleasant and stiff and intolerant. Yeah. So I think the more that you can kind of draw it out, um, the more its stranglehold over certain institutions will probably loosen. But I think in large part the answer is to, again, build institutions and yeah. um, fortify ourselves outside of those structures. And when, and when you stand up against them, it does collapse. Mm. They, they actually don't, they don't sustain themselves particularly well when people are brave enough. Mm -hmm. But as you say, because it's insinuated itself so far into the echelons of power, I mean, the Stonewall example is, is quite clear. There was that report this week in the Times about how Stonewall has unprecedented mm -hmm. influence within the Tory party. And this idea that the Tory party are waging a war on woke, as far as I can see, they're definitely not. Mm. Uh, uh, but maybe they should be. You know, they're they're actually not doing this at all. Mm -hmm. uh, they're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that they're introducing this uh, policing bill uh, that would clamp down on, on protests just because they're a bit noisy, for yeah. instance, that to me is is a, is a woke idea. Mm -hmm. um, and and similarly with the um, they're, they're, you know they haven't been great historically on on freedoms on free speech. They're still perpetuating hate hate speech laws. Mm -hmm. They're not doing anything about that. I would say the Tory Party are pretty woke. I think I think what they recognise, and it's a it's an unfortunate thing is that for whatever reason, this ideology has gained the moral high ground on basically social and cultural issues. Yeah. Um, and so you see institutions, even a Tory government, a Tory party, uh, the capitalist class and the corporate set, who have wrapped their arms around this agenda in a very yeah. meaningful way in recent years, it becomes a form of sort of legitimacy and mission for them. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, if you take the example of the Tory party, that doesn't win them any supporters in, you know, student union. <laughs> you know, but it, I suppose it doesn't win them support even amongst the people that they seem to want to be currently okay, with, okay. if you see what I mean, because they'll just think of them as far-right nutcases anyway, such is the politics of it. But I think what they kind of recognise is that that's how you cosy up to the cultural elite, if you see what I mean. But, but as you say, it completely puts off voters. Well, every I mean. time these things are put to an electoral test, it fails completely. So that, that's what's recently. confusing about it, is that yes, you can cozy up to the managerial class and the capitalist class and, mm. and, the, and the corporate class. And then, you're, but if you're gonna do it in this way, yeah. you're, you, won't, you won't win elections down the line. Mm. You know, I know that the Tories are very much in, in control at the moment, but the more they do this, the less, uh, isn't just really, they haven't really got an opposition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, they, if, they, if there was an effective opposition, this sort of stuff would, would actually Real problems for yeah. them, wouldn't it? No, it would, but again, you know, where is that going to come from? I mean, on oh, all of the right. sorts of issues, you realise that um, there's just no opposition really to be had. And, you know, as we say, I think it just speaks to how entrenched even this Tory party is in, that, in those kinds of elite ideas, really. And I think it just reminds us that they are elite ideas, even though they like to pose as very kind of anti-elite and very radical. Yeah. They bind themselves to fit very neatly into the agenda of a lot of people they claim to be against, which I think is interesting. Do you think this has been imported from the US, this culture war? I mean, you, you've done tours in America, mm -hmm. haven't you? Free speech tours through Spiked around university campuses. So you've seen sort of directly, mm -hmm. what, what, what are the major differences that you, you saw from doing that? 
I mean, it does fit, this is not an original point, but it does feel like we're downstream from the US yeah. in a lot of these things. I mean, this was a few years ago now, and obviously free speech on university campuses was increasingly a thing. But I remember we went and we did this unsafe space tour of campuses, and we mm. were having one event at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And it was all about, um, it was actually about um, Black Lives Matter, effectively, the earlier iteration of it, yeah. all, and all of the discussions around identity politics. So we had a kind of panel of liberals, um, some libertarians, as well as the conservative as well, who were all basically of the view that identity politics was um, essentially the new racial politics. And yeah. It was the thing that was dividing up people. So we're having a discussion about this. Now, even to hold this thing, they insisted on having, I think, a 10-strong police presence. Um, there were bag checks on the way in at which they took two megaphones off of people. Um, the whole event completely descended into absolute bedlam. They got people were standing up chanting Black Lives Matter while people from the panel were saying, do you think we disagree with that and all this kind of stuff. It was actually a lot of fun, I should add, because okay. it was just such a circus. I actually really quite enjoyed it. And we managed to pull the event back. But this is for a primarily British magazine. Mm. None of them had any idea who we were. They didn't really even know any of the panellists, as far as I could tell from the conversations I yeah. had with protesters before and afterwards. Just because we were daring to ask the question about whether or not this identity politics thing was a good thing. And that's a, that a few years ago was not necessarily as present on campus as we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. That kind of slightly neo-Maoist sort yeah, of aspect. Yeah. But it's definitely come back now. So it does feel like we are downstream from America in a lot of these issues, and that's definitely a bad thing. Yeah. Like. So this comes back to what you were saying about the need to build other institutions. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know we've got this University of Austin, mm -hmm. isn't it, that's being established. There's Ralston College in Savannah. So mm -hmm. there are people who are building places where free speech, free inquiry, the mm -hmm. pursuit of truth and knowledge, all of these things can potentially flourish. The problem I see with all of that is that those will be stigmatised by uh, you know, the, the, the media and various um, uh, and activists. Mm -hmm. So that like, if you were to graduate from one of those universities, you, you, you might find it hard getting a job. Is that a fair point? Well, it's certainly going to take some time, isn't it? Because yeah. I think the problem is not only is um, academia completely lost to all of this stuff, but so is the corporate world. And we talk about you know Britain being downstream from America. I think a lot of this was always downstream from the universities anyway. Yeah. I'm sure you encountered this many times over the years um, when talking about issues of free speech or identity politics, because so much that used to happen in the kind of theatre of the university campus, people would say, what are you getting so upset about? Students have always been a bit over the top. Yeah. Um, this isn't the real world, they'll get over it. What we've really seen is that those ideas have now completely kind of permeated throughout the upper echelons of society from where they began there. Yeah. So in a way, you know, it's really important that um, there is this challenge to this complete dominance of woke thinking within the universities. But as you say, it's going to take a long time for that to conquer it elsewhere in society because yeah. it's just everywhere. Now. Well, that's it. I mean, it, it isn't just a question of universities mm -hmm. now. It is people's everyday life, their work environments, their HR departments, etc. Um, what do you think about this notion? I mean, I think I did want to ask you about council culture, mm -hmm. the idea of council culture. Because again and again, I keep hearing council culture is a right-wing myth. Mm -hmm. No one has ever been cancelled. This isn't a real thing. Um, how would you, I mean, you've written a lot about this subject. How do you can, uh, counter that? Well, you could go horse listing the examples, couldn't yeah, you? Of course. Which I think yeah. is important, and we, and we could spend our time on that. But I think the, the, the way I would counter it is I think that the argument, that argument is always made entirely in bad faith. And you'll yeah. notice this because they will focus on examples of people who haven't really been cancelled. So they'll yes. talk endlessly about J.K. Rowling. They'll say, everyone says J.K. Rowling's a victim of cancel culture. She's you know, still one of the richest women in publishing mm. and cultural life. And, you know, she has not lost a job necessarily over this. Now there were some skirmishes, you know, a publisher of, 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 which was running her um, new kids book, The Ichabod, where 
people were threatening to down tools. But of course, in general, yeah. yes, this hasn't really necessarily happened. Um, she's been demonised, certainly. She's probably lost some friends over it. She's probably lost some opportunities, potentially. But it's not really going to touch her. But yeah. the thing is, the list does not begin and end with J.K. Rowling. Yeah. There are so many people. I mean, even if you just take a few steps down, Gillian Phillip, who's an author, um, who was dropped by her publisher for tweeting her support for J.K. Mm -hmm. Rowling. You go further down the pecking order, and you're talking about people like Brian Leach, um, who was uh, uh, someone who the Free Speech Union, I believe, have been involved with, who was a greeter at an ASDA. And because he'd shared on his Facebook page a Billy Connolly routine, that was taking the mick out of religion in general, but Islam in particular, I believe, he lost his job yeah. over that. And this is the thing, is that we can, first of all, there's, there's, an, issue, there's an example of council culture in, in the news basically every week. Yeah. Um, the weight of examples doesn't seem to breach the sort of bad faith deflection argument. But at the same time, I think the important point that's worth stressing is that in a way its most corrosive impact is amongst the people you probably don't hear about. Because so, I hear from them all the time. So this is this is the, this idea that council culture is a myth, this sort of, predicated on the idea that there are certain things that are beyond the pale and therefore these people are just suffering the consequences for being vile bigots. Mm -hmm. But as you pointed out, uh, the, the, the things that they're supposedly done wrong mm -hmm. aren't actually uh, examples of vile bigotry in, yeah. in nine times out of ten. Mm -hmm. So then how can, you, how can you deal with this? I mean, I don't know how you could persuade people that, uh, that this is, it is a real thing, it's actually happening, Innocent people mm -hmm. are losing their jobs, having their reputations trashed. And the more examples you layer on, because there are so many, as yeah. you say, uh, the more impervious they seem to be mm -hmm. to that. Uh, how can you... How can we, it's like they're constructing a pseudo-reality. Yeah. And in which case, how can we reach the point where debating with those people has become <laughs> kind of impossible? It has, but you know, I'll come back to that point about it's always worth it purely just to... You know, completely dismantle their nonsense because, again, on the council culture issue, the bad faith of that discussion. And one thing that I think is always useful because a lot of the time we are talking about people who like to think of themselves on, on the left here. Yeah. What council culture effectively is is empowering bosses to sack people because of their privately often held and expressed opinions. Yeah. It's a campaign for bosses' rights. Yeah. Occasionally, people say it's quite explicitly. So, around um, one of the recent cancellations in recent years, Billy Bragg said that he believes that an employer does have a right to sack someone over yeah. this, you know, alleged left-wing, you know, what, stalwart. What, did, do you remember saying, what the specific opinion was in that case? I'm, I'm, if, if I remember correctly, it was gender critical. I can't remember okay. the specific case, whether it was Maya Forsatter or Gillian Phillip or someone like this. Mm. And it was, um, I think it might have been Gillian Phillip, incidentally, but I'd have to check. But that really was it crystallised. Again, you saw this little slip yeah, <laughs> take yeah, place. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, whether or not they'll listen to it is another thing. I don't think they will. But what they're basically advocating for is for people to be able to lose their livelihoods and for their bosses to be empowered to basically set the parameters of what it is that they're allowed to say and think, even outside of work. Yes. Which, and yet they dress this up as a really progressive, wonderful thing. It's absolutely crazy. But you have the argument, not really for them, but for everyone else. And not just to try and win people over, but also to let people know that they're not alone in thinking all of this is crazy and quite sinister, which is also important. To what extent do you think this can be resolved, not resolved, but at least improved by focusing on education and focusing mm. on young people? Because it looks to me very much like the woke, if we call them the woke, and we always have to sort of qualify that because no one knows quite what to call them. Yeah. They're very much targeting schools, mm. primary schools, young people. Now that seems to be uh, the approach they're mm. taking. So is there something that can be done to counter that? Well, I think it's important because as you say, even though it's not necessarily been the sort of concerted 
campaign. It's washed through educational institutions right. very naturally, yeah. hasn't it? Um, and that is something which is really alarming. And I think whilst in the UK, I'm sure given the fact that I know you know a lot of teachers, I know you used to be a teacher, the things you must hear on a daily basis of whether it's this racial politics, whether it's gender politics, just yeah. creeping into the school curriculum as if it's as natural as talking about you know, biology or something I'm like that. I'm getting WhatsApp messages from teachers all the time. I have one this morning yeah. from somebody who's, be, uh, somebody who's going to the school and he's going to come in and give a workshop and it's all about the pronouns. And mm. it's all the, you know, and he's like, what do I call this? He's yeah. even asking, what, what do I actually call this? Mm. How do I argue against it? They don't, it feels like a lot of the teachers don't feel they have the tools yeah. or the understanding because it sounds terribly complicated. Mm -hmm. And so, and so it's, definitely, it's definitely creeping in. Yeah. But again, that's another thing that is denied. No, it, it is, and I think one of the things that is really important that we push back against is, whether you're talking about in education or anywhere else, the big um, advantage, if you like, that um, woke politics has is that it dresses itself up as good things. Yeah. It dresses itself up as anti-racism. It dresses itself up as being anti-discrimination. It dresses itself as, up as being pro-rights and all the rest of it. It is none of these things. <laughs> you know? yeah, worse still. And that's really important to, to point out because they act as if they've got right on their side and they really don't. And until people rec have the... The resources, if you like, and the arguments at hand to be able to raise their objections, whether it's with an elected official, whether it's not with their with their child's school, whether or not it's in the you know the it's in the staff room at yeah. the school out on the part of the teacher, uh, the more this is going to bed in. So I think it is just about it's a push across society, but education is particularly important because this is where it's getting reproduced and pushed you know further and further throughout society it feels like. but there's an added dimension to this which is that i think it's i think it is worse than what you're describing mm. because yes they are couching regressive ideas in progressive terminology that for that therefore makes it difficult to argue against but in addition i think a lot of the, the proponents believe it is progressive yeah so it's not just the case that this is all subterfuge mm -hmm. no you're right I, th I think it comes from a good place as well that makes it even harder doesn't mm -hmm. it well, it's like that was it that C.S. Lewis quote about it's better to live under robber, robber barons and moral crusaders, you know, because yeah. the sense that uh, at the end of the day, even someone who's doing something dreadful has to try and sleep at night. But if you believe you've got right on your side, you know, how yeah. do you <laughs> how do you right, push back right. against that? But it's it's difficult. But again, I think we come back to just exposing the ideology for what it is, which is even if among some people it is well-meaning. Incidentally, I don't think it, with some of them it is necessarily, but there no, is that's, that's there the is because there's a yeah. vicious side to it, yeah, which yeah, is really yeah. important, um, and it's a really ugly side to it as well. But um, at the end of the day, it's just worth stressing that this politics, whether we want to call it woke or whatever it is, I find woke is just the easiest thing, so it might as well, yeah. is um, there's a whole discourse around that. I know. Yeah, See, yeah. recently they were trying to suggest it was a racial slur, someone from Slate. I never saw that. Who's, Slate? I'll, I'll send you a link. Some writer for Slate was trying to suggest it was basically uh, the N-word by proxy. Yeah, but that just sounds like a tactic again. Exactly. Like, like it's it's delegitimising the terms that you can use to describe them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and th this feels like they've done that with woke, which they mm -hmm. used to identify as. Yeah. And now they're saying, no, that's your word that you use and it's a slur. <laughs> and, and so um, that sort of thing, I think, yeah. is just strategic, surely. But it's, and that's, it is, but I think, again, it just comes back to demonstrating that the primary, most effective movement for bringing back racial divisions and categories in yes. public life today is woke politics. It's captured all these institutions. I mean, the far right is odious and disgusting, but it's an incredibly marginal force. These people yeah. are not winners. These people are not ruling the roost in any major way whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this woke politics, it's everywhere. It's everywhere from the ACLU to the Tory party, you know, yeah, yeah. To, the arts, to arts institutions. And this is something which is insisting that people, even young people, constantly think of themselves as racial beings with, you know, varying different levels 
of privilege, which preaches the idea that, say, white and black people, their interests are fundamentally different, their experiences are fundamentally different, and they cannot be brought together. You just have to kind of manage relations between them as best you possibly can. This is the most powerful and effective means through which racial and racist, in some cases, ideas are being reproduced throughout society. And I think we need to keep talking about it in those terms. Will we win all of them over? Almost certainly not, but at least we'll demonstrate to people out there that what they suspect they see in their kids' schoolwork or on television or in the media is what they think it is, mm. which is the opposite of what it presents itself so, to. So that question then comes down to this, this idea of systemic racism, institutional racism. Do you accept that there are circumstances where an institution can have racism embedded into its core to the extent uh, that members of that institution aren't even aware of it? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I'm not entirely sure what some of these terms mean anymore. You know, because there was, you know, there's the kind of definitions we, we operate with previously, which is that, you know, this might not be the intent of a certain structure of organisation or certain policies, but the impact of it is to greatly yeah. disadvantage X, Y, Z group. But it, it seems to me now to apply to basically any institution, which is slightly confusing, yeah. um, as well as the fact that it seems to lump together structures, if you like, with also um, attitudes and behaviours. So it's a very confused and convoluted term. I mean, generally, I think the difficulty is, is that whenever someone starts to talk about not just institutional racism, but racism full stop, because the definitions have been so expanded yeah. and because they've been so abused, then it elicits more scepticism than it really should, unfortunately. Right. So whenever you hear these terms thrown around, you just assume someone's not necessarily making it up, but certainly getting things entirely the wrong way around. And I actually thought it was really interesting this week, and I wrote about this on Spike, with the allegations of racism at Yorkshire County Cricket Club, Azim Rafiq, the yes. cricketer, British Pakistani cricketer, um, who has alleged, and an internal investigation has essentially corroborated, at least in large part, that yeah. um, South Asian players were subjected to um, racial slurs, constant racist um, jibes, all the rest of it, dressed up as banter, but nevertheless something that in Rafiq's case, he says, was essentially ended his career. And I think when you see cases like that, you realise what racism sort of really looks like. And yeah. you realise that even though we talk about racism constantly, often what we're talking about is whether or not that, that woman who used to be in Little Mix is wearing too much spray tan. Yeah, or yeah, whether yeah. or not just because there aren't a perfect allocation of each racial groups of numbers in a particular organisation or in an orchestra or in a play or whatever, then therefore the institution is systemically racist and needs to be overhauled. Yeah. This is what sort of racism looks like over here and it's important that we tackle it. But when you see cases like that arise, you realise that so much of what is presented as racism, systemic racism, is often people kind of fighting with phantoms a lot of the time. Yeah. So I thought that case was a good corrective in a way this week as to what the thing that we do have to be very um, vigilant against, but is mercifully still a relatively small force in society. But, but people, if people point that make that kind of point and say, effectively what you're saying is that we should, uh, we should stand up against racism when, when it's there, mm -hmm. not when we imagine it's there. Um, and people will say that that, though, is to deny racism, mm. to deny the lived experience of those who have experienced it, even in an institution where you can see it's not race, or the evidence mm. doesn't point to racism. Well, I think we, these things can't just be entirely subjective, though, can they? Especially because of the fact that we're in a situation where, um, again, if the categories become so much more expanded, you know, right. and this is the problem, is that when you talk about racism, pretty much everyone's against racism, right? It's a good thing that everyone is against it. But at the same time, what that means has changed so much. It can mean cultural appropriation now. Yeah. It can mean, you know, Jamie Oliver bringing out a jerk rice microwave product. Yeah. It can mean all these different sorts of things. Um, but at the same time, I think it's actually really important to push back against the kind of seeing racism everywhere thing. First of all, because I think it makes people 
ordinary people are just much more skeptical when the issue comes up, which is a bad, which is a problem. You know, yeah, you need yeah, to be yeah. able to just take these things um, head on, and it's difficult when you're always kind of wading through this soup of other sorts of issues and claims. And the other thing is that there's a part of anti anti racist politics today, which is uh, it demands a level of absurd pessimism to claim that things are as bad as they ever have been, yeah, effectively. Yeah. That no progress has been made whatsoever. And all you really have to do, whether it's at this institution, that institution, that business, that university, is scratch a, a bit beneath the surface and it's just like the 1970s or whatever, yeah. it's become more covert. That's a really dangerous idea, actually. It's not just wrong, as we can all see, yeah, <laughs> from yeah, all of yeah. our lived experience, of all background, but also the fact that if you deny that any progress has been made, how are you supposed to make any more of it, right. if you see what I mean? And how are you supposed to root out racism where it does exist? if you presume that everyone and almost everything is racist. But the truth you is most, most people don't think that, do they? Like, I, I think even most of the quote-unquote woke people don't yeah. really think that, do they? It's, it's a kind of very niche group of those who are completely uh, sort of Im immersed in critical race theory, which yeah. of course is underpinned by that idea that these power structures operate within society and, and that racism is inevitable in yeah. every human interaction. But in reality, very few people think that's true. No, you're so, right. But the problem is they set the agenda, those people that you refer to, unfortunately. Um, and people defer to them on these matters. They're seen as the most powerful and radical voices in the room on these issues. And yeah. therefore, all of, these other all of these other institutions basically set their template from those people in some way, shape or form. But you're right. It, it, things, it cuts, it does, I genuinely think that that worldview, niche though it is, but also quite powerful, it cuts against people's genuine lived experiences. Yeah. And that's people of all backgrounds, I think. When they're really presented what it is these people are saying and think, that is not reality for but the most people. But what I mean is not in reality for the, for the actors. I mean, when you actually get talking to, yeah. to, to people who identify as woke or, or, or follow those, those political lines, they will say to you, oh, I'm not saying that things haven't got better since mm -hmm. the 1960s. I'm not saying yeah. that. Uh, they, they often say it online and things. Mm -hmm. and articles, <laughs> but, but when you sit down and talk to them, they're not, they don't really think. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, and this is part of the reason why I think um, woke politics and anti-racist politics, as it currently is, is on a bit of a hiding to nothing. Is that it's almost become, and the author John McWhorter uses this phrase, a kind of form of performance art. Yeah, yeah. You know, you almost wonder the extent to which they actually believe it. And that also, one thing that also joins some of these people, not all of them, is a profound pessimism about the, the ability of change full stop. And I think yes. it's because it almost just becomes the act of pointing to and signalling your distaste for racism, real or imagined, is almost the whole point of it. That's McWhorter's point for a yeah, lot of these people. Yeah. And that's a problem, and especially given the fact that if that if all of our discussions around these issues is taken up with that performance art, as he turns it, then we just end up with a much more kind of divisive and touchy society that we necessarily need to have. For and are we not at risk of ending up fighting with phantoms as well? Mm -hmm. Because because we end up fighting with the, the extreme persona that you see on online mm -hmm. uh, or, or a version of people that isn't necessarily close to the truth and partly that's due to these kind of misrepresentations through social media and media yeah is that a risk that you're uh, aware of at all i think there's always there's always a bit of a danger that you know we can lapse into all of that but again i go back to the point where these ideas are very extreme and even a few years ago right they were really on the fringe you know yeah, you would yeah. argue against you would argue against these people you would bump into them from time to time but there's something about recent years, particularly, I think, the post-George Floyd moment, where it's just been catapulted into the mainstream. I mean, we really shouldn't forget, it was much worse in the US than it was here, but the way in which one cancellation after another seemed to be taking place, mm. just because, I mean, there was one instance at the Poetry Foundation in the US 
where two people on their executive board, I think it was, had to resign because their statement in support of Black Lives Matter was deemed to be too short. Really? <laughs> and there's things like this. I'll, I'll send it to you. It's in, <laughs> it's in um, Walter's book, which is very good and people should have a look at. Um, it's woke racism. The woke racism, which yeah. is definitely worth a look. Um, this is, was very serious. There was a moment in which what was genuinely, as you say, very fringe, not necessarily a lot of people, ordinary people certainly don't speak like this, has suddenly, and we hope temporarily, been given a hell of a lot of power. So we should, yes, of course, we shouldn't caricature everyone and pretend like everyone who just considers themselves liberal and left-wing today thinks like this. They certainly don't. But the people who've been allowed to set the agenda in recent years do think a version of what we're talking about. And it's really important that that's pushed back against, especially because they're setting the agenda, if you like. To what extent, though, is it generational? Insofar as one of the arguments I constantly hear is, oh, well, it's just older, older generations mm. raining against younger generations who want to change things and move things on, and that this is a story as old as time, and it's always mm. been the case. But of course, although when you were writing about this stuff, you must have been, you were basically an infant yourself, you? <laughs> you, you, you know, when you started mm. talking about this stuff. So is that a persuasive Point of view? I mean, you do see, if you look at surveys and things, that there is a, a generational component, or as a lot of people are pointing out and hoping that the kind of the Generation Z, as it were, are yeah. markedly less woke or politically correct, or whatever you like to say, than, say, the my generation millennials are. But it's still, um, so there's definitely a generational component to it. And also, yeah. the other thing is, you've got to remember, like, young people, you know, you, there's a natural tendency to want to be feel that they're sort of radical and left-wing or whatever. And this is what being radical and left-wing means now. So you can understand why they would attach themselves to it. It doesn't feel radical because... It's not, of course. Because but. everyone's doing it and the establishment supports it. Yeah. So I, that's what I don't understand about how, yeah. how this, this can be seen as edgy or mm. rebellious. It feels more conformist. Oh, it is, completely. But for whatever reason, and we, it's going back to that point about how the terms in which we discuss these things are so incredibly off, because it's not... Um, interesting it's not dissident and it's also not radical it's incredibly regressive but this is what passes for left-wing politics right. these days um, and I think in terms of as I say it's not exclusively them it's important to say um, but at the same time I think it's it becomes more and more important to kind of provide that counter argument to make yeah. sure that people can attach themselves to it. but I, I do think you're starting to see a bit of a shift even amongst younger people away from this kind of stuff for precisely the reasons that you claim because it does the thing about the woke left is that it really just in feel, putting aside the politics, is exactly like the religious right used to be. Just that sense of being stiff, yeah, being yeah, uptight, yeah. being naturally intolerant, being shrill. They are all of those things. And I think the younger people in particular are probably starting to clock that and want to push back against it because who wants to hang out with someone like that? Sure. Man? So you started, you were saying that you started by writing about the arts um, and film and that kind of thing, then moved into this. Mm -hmm. but. It's, there is a relationship between the two, isn't there? Because I keep seeing more and more the way in which the arts and film in particular, mm -hmm. it has also been infected by this stuff. Is that something that concerns you? It is because it, it you know, you made the point as well, is that wokeness and artistic freedom basically cannot coexist, <laughs> you right, know, in so many right. ways. I mean, there's, the, there's this tendency, and it's, sometimes it's a bit implicit, but it's def definitely there, amongst um, people who make film and TV and in Hollywood these days, which is that art always has to basically deliver the message. If it's going to deliver any message, it has to be the message. Yeah, you know, it has yeah. to be the, some sort of approximation of the woke shibboleths of the day. And that's just an incredibly stultifying place to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and also the other thing is that it's not just about what's being written and what's being produced, but it's who's being cast. You know, all yeah. of these discussions around whether or not, you know, who Scarlett Johansson has got in trouble for playing this yeah. week. All these things, it just shows that I just don't think a properly flourishing kind of artistic scene 
can function under a kind of Stalinist-like setup where you are expected to cast certain people, to make a certain thing, and even though it's not enforced, a lot of it's unthinking, it's incredibly stifling, and you see it across all of the arts at the moment, definitely. Well, so, I, you know, I won't bother going to the theatre now mm. because whenever I go, it just feels like I'm being lectured at. Yeah. And that, to me, is utterly... I mean, look, maybe some great things will be there, uh, but it's just so... It feels like I'm watching something art that has been sanctioned by the state. Yeah. That's the sort of impression that you get from it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 don't, I don't know how you fight back against that when artists can only be commissioned if they follow the state line. Yeah. That's where we're at, isn't it? And it's even not in terms of their work, if you like. Cause right. The Terry Gilliam example recently, so he was going to be producing um, Into the Woods at the Old Vic. Yes. Um, and he was shown the door because there was one of these kind of little internal staff revolts um, over yeah. Terry Gilliam. So he, um, as in recent years, in a quite kind of fun and cantankerous fashion, sort of pushed back against a few things, um, against identity politics. He made a joke to a very unimpressed interviewer that he was going to self-identify as a black lesbian or something like yes. this. Um, did he say something about the Me Too movie? Me well? Too, he said, basically, that whilst he thought Harvey Weinstein was a horrible man, that there were good people getting caught up on it who had just slipped up, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that he wasn't it, supporting... He wasn't important, uh, supporting sexual abusers, no, 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 not no. at all, but just suggesting that it turned into a bit of a witch hunt, in right. which is true as it goes. Um, for saying this, um, and for making these comments, um, there was this revolt, and he was basically shown the door. He was asked to come in and talk to senior management, where they had a conversation about the values of the institution, and then that was that. And now, obviously, the old Vic has a particular sensitivity around this, because Kevin Spacey, I think, was um, in residence there, effectively, during yes. some of the allegations against him were made. But nevertheless, I think it shows that in case like Terry Gilliam, it's not as if even the work would have cut against some of these, you know, um, some of these ideas. It was just in terms of his own personal opinions. Yes. And you, in a way, I think the cultural world is further ahead than almost anywhere else, apart from maybe universities, because of the fact that you see this all the time, whether it's J.K. Mm -hmm. Rowling's publisher, whether it's Netflix and Dave Chappelle, you just have these... Um, lines being enforced from below yeah. almost and I think one thing that's just important to say just finally on that is the fact there's a tendency to suggest oh isn't this great it's you know it's the workers it's the cultural workers pushing you back against the bosses but again you're playing an incredibly dangerous game I think when you're basically empowering your employer to set the parameters of what is acceptable yeah. to think because if it can happen to Terry Gilliam it can definitely happen to a stagehand if you see what I mean yeah, so but that but yeah the arts is definitely further down the rabbit hole than most so what's next for Spike? So, um, the editorship is just underway. I mean, I'm in a great position that I've got a lot that I can build on. Yeah. Um, not only, obviously, Brendan O'Neill um, has led us very courageously into a lot of the issues that we've been talking about, helped yeah. us really break new ground. And I see, I see my uh, role now is really just kind of building on our successes, you know, um, really deepening the arguments. Brendan's still writing every week, which is fantastic. And also bringing in new writers, new faces. Recently, um, when my editorship started, um, introduced... Julie Virtual and Simon Evans and Joel Kotkin as new columnists. Yeah. Um, and we've got a few announcements coming up, which um, I can't quite talk about yet, but which yeah. are very much about kind of building out our message and getting it to as many people as possible. So and the more podcast, and more to come. of course, you've got your Spike podcast. Is that weekly, I think? Yes, yeah, so the Spike podcast, which is myself, Fraser Myers and Ella Whelan, which goes out every week. It's on um, pod services and on YouTube as well. And, of course, we've got Brenda's podcast, which is weekly as well, which is him speaking to various interesting people and last orders which is a kind of more libertarian thing that i do with chris snowden from the iea which is also worth checking out fantastic well do check out all of those things at the spiked online website spiked www.spikedonline.com don't forget that yeah <laughs> it's very important uh thank you tom for joining me thank today you.
and thank you uh, for joining me for the Free Speech Nation podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do like and subscribe, and then come back next week where I'll have another fantastic guest. See you later.